everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be covering episode 322, entitled Through the Looking Glass Part 1. This is the 71st hour of the series, and there are 50 to go. Of course, next week we'll conclude season 3 with Looking Glass Part 2. But with that, let's jump into the Wikipedia summary for this episode, which goes as follows. In Flash Forwards, Jack is depressed, bearded, heavily drinking, and addicted to painkillers. After reading about the death of someone he knew, Jack appears to be ready to commit suicide by jumping off the 6th Street Viaduct Bridge. However, he is distracted by a car crash and goes to save the victims. In the present day story, Saeed, Jin, and Bernard remain at the beach, tasked with shooting the dynamite-rigged tents, while the rest of the survivors journey with Danielle Rousseau to the radio tower to communicate with Naomi's nearby ship. The others arrive, and while Said and Bernard detonate their tents, Jin misses his target, which results in their capture by the others. After hearing only two explosions, Sawyer and Juliet turn back to see if they can help. Hurley wanted to join them, but is turned back. Elsewhere, after knocking Desmond unconscious, Charlie dives down into the Looking Glass, a research station of the Dharma Initiative, with the hope of disabling the system, jamming outgoing transmissions. Charlie is captured by the resident others Greta and Bonnie. Ben learns of Charlie's infiltration and sends Mikhail to the station to kill the three in order to preserve the signal jamming. Kate is upset about Sawyer not wanting to come back to the beach with him to rescue Saeed, Jin, and Bernard. Jack tells her it is because Sawyer was trying to protect her. When she asks why Jack is defending Sawyer, Jack informs Kate that it is because he loves her. And lastly, John Locke has been shot by Ben. Finding his legs paralyzed again, Locke is about to commit suicide with a gun left over from the Dharma Purge when he is stopped by what appears to be Walt. And with that, let's now get into my thoughts about the episode. Certainly a, uh, a, a great episode, action-packed, lean, mean episode. Uh, of course... With all these two-parters that I split in half, there's always the debate, you know, is that the best thing to do? I think certainly in retrospect, when we talk about Lost having had 121 hours to it, 121 episodes, uh, all these two-parters are, uh, are cut into, uh, into one-hour chunks, uh, with uh, possibly the exception of the finale. I'm not sure whether the finale counts as uh, one episode or two. I suspect just the one episode. But uh, certainly this is how the episodes are presented on Netflix, on DVD, and um, so there you go. I know that there is, and I think it's in the, the trivia uh, bits at the end from Lostpedia, there is a slight different uh, uh, presentation of a couple of scenes towards the end of this episode, Looking Glass Part 1, um, uh, compared to its broadcast uh, uh, order, its broadcast form. 
but it, I said, well, we'll get to that when we get to it. And uh, let's talk properly about this episode, which starts, of course, with a previously on Lost, which is no nonsense. It tells us, reminds us that we have a boat off the coast, an underwater station, Charlie swimming, Ben ready to kill, a dynamite tent plot, and the question, will Charlie die? The episode proper could have opened up alias style, I think. Uh, continued the action from the cliffhanger, uh, which, of course, was Charlie being, uh, you know, uh, discovered by the two uh, under-the-sea Dharma ladies. I guess they are properly other ladies, not Dharma, but anyhow. So it could have started that way. It would have been a lot of fun. That certainly would have carried through uh, the tension from the last episode, the tension from the last bunch of episodes with this question, will Charlie die? Instead, there it is. The beginning of the next chapter. It's Jack, bearded, despondent. He, of course, is on a plane, an oceanic plane. There's uh, the first bit of turbulence that passes, and he almost rolls his eyes. It's not quite rolls his eyes, but you almost get the sense that that, that he's feeling uh, fatalistic. Uh, of course, the show doesn't oversell it. It's not going to spoil that mind-blowing ending too soon. But that something catches his eye in the newspaper, something that will propel us for the next uh, two seasons, and... Of course, we can't see what it is. We can't see that it's the death notice for Locke under an alias himself. Uh, and indeed, looking at Jack here, I think you can uh, fairly say it's as low as we've ever seen him. Hey. It's me. I, uh... I just read... Giacchino's music is so spare here, letting everything else do the heavy work. With that, Jack, our sometimes fearless, sometimes fearsome leader, starts to eye the bridge. We don't know why, on first viewing. We don't know when this is. In a sense, the second half of Lost, seasons four through six, have already started. We just won't know that until the end of this double episode. With that, Jack steps to the edge, whispering, please forgive me. Now, on first viewing, it plays that he's saying it to God. I mean, who else would you be asking for forgiveness as you uh, really ponder taking your own life? For us, though... I think that he's saying it to everyone else, to all the people he left behind, the ones that he couldn't save on the island. Of course, what happens next is that the car behind him crashes, and there's the slightest sense of cruel, cruel fate. But at least a doctor was there to save them, right? It's also worth mentioning that though the show certainly has started in flashback in numerous episodes, the general dynamic of an episode is to start present day and flashback here and there to illuminate the character and the on-island story. Though the flash-forwards uh, provide a twist on that dynamic, there is an argument uh, to be made, I think, that this episode actually doesn't have flash-forwards, that it's a present-day story, a 2010, that is to say, a 2010 uh, story in Los Angeles which flashes back to the island. Perhaps it's a, a matter of semantics. And certainly at any rate, 
the uh, the familiar whoosh comes. With that, we're back on Survivor Beach. Preparations underway for the big other trick. Jack and the camera survey the scene. Kate packing, Sawyer getting ready to leave. And then Saeed basically gives exposition about Jack's need to keep moving to the radio tower. Because what might go down here on the beach will be a big deal. It's a dirty, dirty thing to need to write exposition for for the, the least among your audience who need that uh, kind of being led along by the nose. But I guess it is what it is. We then move to Rose and Bernard, the former of which half-heartedly offers to help the latter finish the SOS sign if uh, he'll not be a part of the shooting party. It's a splendid goodbye, only topped by the next scene in which Jin, also part of the shooting party, gives Sun advice to stick with Jack. And then he starts to get us crying a bit early. Because we have to go home. With that, the survivors head out, and Giacchino's music starts pulsing. It's fraught with tension and, and, and the drama of the moment. And then we cut to our three gunmen, heroic and alone. It ends the act. Now, notice there that the music almost plays backwards as it climaxes. Is that an early clue about the fast-forwards, perhaps? I, I, I don't know, but... I think it's, uh, well, it's a discussion, well, maybe not a discussion, but it's a, a point worth pondering. With that, we get the title card, then the group led by Rousseau, through a spectacular location, the waves crashing up to the flat volcanic rock as the whole group walks on, really uh, just a, a wonderful uh, wonderful angle, they've captured the waves so well, the, the way that the extras in the main cast is placed, it's Enough so the, the wave doesn't splash on them, but they're kind of walking ankle deep in the, in the water as they go by. With that, Naomi asks to speak with Jack, casually calling him Moses, almost as though she, she heard my reference from last week's episode, and then tells Jack how to use the phone in case, you know, anything happens to her. It's a handy bit of info. It's, I think if you're, you know, if you're looking for uh, an early bit of foreshadowing to suggest that she will die. There it is. Certainly a bit of a, a bit of a, a tipping of the hand. She concludes by wondering when the rock star will turn off the blocking signal. Which lets us cut to Charlie, gamely putting up with a beating from the underwater ladies. Uh, it's really nice to see the, the fire in his eyes. You know, he expects to die, so what's a little bit of punching? As the ladies go to call uh, Ben for for more information, he sees the little room with the yellow flashing light, inside which he must turn off the light and then drown. Uh, Bonnie and Greta indeed call Ben, who moves from annoyance to bewilderment as he learns Charlie is down there and uh, that Juliet helped. That, in turn, starts to look like shock when Mikhail points out that Juliet may have told them many other things. Uh, Ben Walkie's Ryan, who, we learn moments later, has turned off his walkie as they're about to hit the beach. The others sneak in, uh, and 
In this scene, Giacchino carries most of the sound, aside from a few gun-related sounds, you know, taking aim, grabbing the gun. There, there really is not any sound to it as Jin, Saeed, and Bernard lie in wait while the others slink in. And then the others realize something is up, just as... I absolutely love the touch of Bernard saying, please God, just before firing. Is he asking for guidance or forgiveness? At any rate, it's unfortunately Jin who needed a truer shot. Isn't the first time he's been off on his aim, if you know what I mean. Uh, And indeed, he misses twice before shooting another and then getting caught by Ryan. We should have known, of course, it's too early in the two-parter for things to be peachy keen, after all. Uh, All three at this point are captured at gunpoint, and we cut to Jack and the survivors watching from afar. Now, it... This is a difficult shot to compose. 40-odd people at night watching the beach at night where burning smoke is rising. Uh, But they pull it off uh, and Rose expositions that there were supposed to be three explosions and Kate concludes that it didn't work, just in case, you know, you turned on the episode a little late. Uh, I did get a bit of a slight Moses vibe, though, particularly with Naomi having mentioned it uh, earlier in the episode. The group, the exodus, a column of smoke, not leading the way as in the Bible, but certainly showing uh, from where they came. At any rate, such failure ends the act, and we return in Flash Forward. I believe that's the first time that I've said that in the podcast. Anyhow, Jack is patched up with the vaguely curious line that the media is waiting to speak with him. Now, I'll stop for a moment and admit, freely, that the first time I saw this episode, both myself and my family absolutely could not conceive of Flash Forwards existing. I know there were rumors out there, if you were so inclined to be going to rumor sites uh, and whatnot. Uh, frankly, I'm happy that I, that I was not, uh, because it's, it's such a well-constructed um, game, if you will, and, and uh, makes that final scene all the better. And I mean, it, indeed, kind of, you know, flashing back to not knowing, uh, we, we sat through the two hours trying to figure out when Jack could have had a beard, but before being a doctor, et cetera, et cetera, really trying to place when this was. But then this scene, aside from the curious comment about why the media would want to talk to a doctor who was on the scene of an accident, which is interesting, but not noteworthy of, or not, not worthy of the media appearing in full force, Then there's the next curious moment in this scene. Sarah, who Jack has fixed, arrives. He calls her his ex-wife. And perhaps at this moment you figured out that this was taking place in the future uh, the first time you saw it. And if so, you certainly were ahead of the game. Uh, Farther ahead than me. As the scene proceeds, Matthew Fox has a a wonderful glassy-eyed look to him. I'm not quite sure how you make yourself... Uh, look unable to focus on something, but 
or, or, or even how you make yourself look like what you're seeing is blurry and to be able to convey that on camera. But he does. Sarah caps off the scene with the question, what were you doing driving around at two o'clock in the morning? There is no answer. The damn show is going to make us wait you know, for a long one on that one. Uh, though certainly at this point we should be used to the mysteries. But that the flash forward ends, and Jack reminds everyone about the need to keep moving. Uh, though the weight of the entire episode at this point, leaving the beach for this for, for the first time, blowing up the others, the shooters being caught and depressed, almost bridge jumping Jack having silent pain, this weight of the episode gets lightened by Rose sharing the wonderful line. If you tell me live together, die alone, I'll punch you in the face. He does not say that, and the group keeps moving along. Naomi checks her phone again, still blocked, and with that we're back in the looking glass where the ladies decide to stop pussyfooting and the three get down to brass tacks. Why are you here? I'm here to turn off your jamming equipment. In there. Next to the flashing yellow light. How do you know about that? I know, because I know. Whatever you ladies do to me, I'm going to turn it off. You are, huh? Most definitely am. So what's the code? What? Oh, Charlie, if you're going to turn off the jamming equipment, you're going to need the code. Then only three people know it. Me, her, and Ben. Well, guess I won't need the code. Since this entire station is going to be flooded anyway. I just turn off your little jammer and the helicopters come and rescue all my friends. But if this station floods, what happens to you? I die. There's the end in sight for Charlie. From a user of heroin to hero. And to boot, he's got faith. The very same faith with which uh, we first saw him in, in the church flashbacks. He has faith that everything is going to work out. With that, the story moves to Ben, being told that seven of their guys have been killed and the camp is cleared out. A basic enough scene unfolds, though it's tense to a point. Saeed won't break, so he's hit. They threaten to shoot Jin, who's ready to take it like a man, and Bernard is ready to sing like a canary. Interestingly enough, the fact that we don't buy into the full drama of it, we really don't think they're killing anyone now, only feeds the fire later on when we absolutely believe that they are dead. Of course, I refer to later on in uh, Looking Glass Part 2. Incidentally, when they're right about to shoot Jin, and after Ryan the other says sayonara to the Korean, uh, Bernard breaks and they don't shoot. Jin looks almost embarrassed. It's a lovely, lovely ac- a little acting moment. That the scene continues with information sharing. Carl warned us about the others coming tonight, while Ben looks off at Alex. Alex, who made this mistake possible. With that, we have an act break. And then, uh, you know, as this episode really is flying, and we return with Ben telling Richard that he, Ben, is going to the radio tower while Richard takes everyone as planned to the temple. Now, I believe this is the first temple reference. Yippee! Alex stamps her feet to go along and, in a nice bit of writing, is shocked when Ben immediately says yes. His zinger, you want to see Carl again, don't you? Then, 
Though Richard counts out the odds, we are reminded why Ben is so dangerous. There's 40 of them, and you're alone. They're going to do whatever it takes to get off the island. What do you think's going to happen when you get there? I'm going to talk them out of it. Now that is confidence. He'll make it happen, bar none. With that, the scene moves to the survivors taking a water break, and Sawyer gets his first lines of the episode. He's critical of Kate wanting to go back, as she always wants to go back to something. It's a rather weak bit of writing for Kate. Juliet was going to see if Kate was pregnant, Sawyer hopes she's not, and so forth, says Kate. Uh, And there's a bit of Sawyer shoehorning going on, perhaps, though we get the addition of Jack double-checking that the light is still red. Hey, all scenes can't be winners. With that, we're back to action, 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 as Desmond quietly wakes up, realizes he's in the boat and Charlie's under the water, and gunfire alerts him to the fact that Mikhail is shooting at him from the shore. Certainly no free lunches and no breaks in this episode. Des jumps in, uh, and there's an especially nice moment where he's uh, against a convincing underwater set. Anyhow, Desmond is given, uh, you know, after he pops out uh, of the moon pool, Desmond is given the quick info to hide, which he does right before Bonnie and Greta come out, ask Charlie who he's talking to, and buy the lie that he's singing, smack him, and resume their talk. Desmond, hiding in the locker all tense and whatnot, ends the act. We return and flash forward, where Jack is popping pills and meeting Rob, the new chief of surgery. Uh, We're seeing in Jack here not tenacity, but rather an attempt to hold on. It's subtle, but it's there. And again, it feels out of place, a hint as to where it fits in the timeline. Jack is tentative and vaguely on autopilot, not the do-gooder who turned in his father or jumped into action on crash day. Flash forward over, we're again with Jack the do-gooder, who is told by Sawyer that he, Sawyer, is going back. It's a nice character-building scene. Sawyer is now ready to go, alone, because Kate wasn't moving in the same emotional direction. Sawyer's ready to go back, perhaps, uh, because she wants it, and he wants to make her happy, despite being pushed away. And it pushes him forward as well. Juliet offers to go with him, taking him ostensibly past a cache of guns. She says she has to, the implication being to finish the job she started in betraying the others. And of course, it's the start of the Juliet and Sawyer storyline of them being on the path of a lifetime and beyond. Jack and Juliet uh, softly, sweetly kiss goodbye as Kate watches. Good old Kate, backing the wrong horse yet again. Story moves back under the sea, where Mikhail arrives and Charlie using the powers of exposition for the forces of good, recaps that it was Ben who sent Bonnie and Greta down here, and they are blocking transmissions off the island. It's enough to turn Mikhail's ear for a moment. A good thing, because the man Charlie calls Cyclops has a knife in his hand. With that, Ben calls, and Mikhail takes the call. You have to understand, everything I did, I did for the island. The island told you it was necessary for you to jam your own people. Yes, it did. You've always been a loyalist, Mikhail. Now I'm asking you to trust me. To trust Jacob, who told me to do this. 
Why would Jacob ask you to lie to your own people? Because this island is under assault by forces stronger than anything it's had to deal with in many, many years. And we are meant to protect it, Mikhail, by any means necessary. The jamming was for everyone's security. We are in a serious situation here. So why not trust me? I made a mistake. I should have told you, and I apologize. Mikhail, are you still there? Yes. I need you to help me. I need you to help me clean up this mess that I've made. I need you to kill Charlie. Make sure that the jamming mechanism continues to function at all costs. And we can't risk Greta and Bonnie telling the others about what we've done, so you'll have to take care of them, too. How do I know you didn't say the same thing to them about me? Because if I had, Mikhail, you'd already be dead. As much as we're meant to hate Ben, he's telling the truth, spot on. It's Widmore who's coming. Widmore who is the threat the island hasn't known for many years. And we should know that, at least to have an inkling of it, based on the balloon that brought the real Henry Gale. I also love that Ben almost condescendingly says, I need you to help me out here for asking Mikhail to, you know, go gun down three people in the persons of Charlie, Greta, and Bonnie. As Mikhail's one eye looks off in the distance, and his other is covered in a pretty good makeup job that they nonetheless keep away from the camera, the act ends. We return to the survivors going through the jungle. Kate has a rock in her shoe, or so she says, and Jack explains that Sawyer's mean, mean words were meant to push her away because... He cares. And Jack decides to screw Kate up even more by reminding her that he did the same thing. Push her away because he cares. And why is he sticking up for Sawyer? Because Jack says, I love you. Aw. Except, you know, Kate is an unstable person when it comes to matters of the heart, and I'm sure this will only further confuzzle her, but no matter. Story moves to Sawyer, and we get, finally an on-the-record admission that will connect the start of Season 3 to later seasons, and indeed to the end of The End. So, when you pulled us out of those polar bear cages and put us on the Chang Gang, what the hell did you have us breaking all those rocks for, anyway? We're building a runway. Runway? For what? The aliens. I don't know what for. Do you think they told me everything? Yeah, yeah, whatever you say. A runway? Gee whiz! Yes, it's wrapped in a joke for the aliens, doubtless some reference to another crackpot theory, but what lands on runways? Planes! And we'll see that. I suppose planes take off from them as well, and that's, you know, the, what, the, one of the last, uh, the last moments of the entire series is that, uh, Ajira flight taking off of that very runway. Fun, fun, fun. Things turn less fun, though, when Juliet admits that there aren't any guns, and that was an excuse to simply do the right thing and go back. Sawyer immediately understands. It's as though they're on the same wavelength. With that, Hurley, who's also been underused as of late, trots along, wanting to be part of some sort of interesting plot in this episode. Sawyer rejects him on account of his athletic prowess, or lack thereof, and it stings Hurley, 
than perhaps us. It's also a case of Hurley being underestimated, as we'll learn in the conclusion of the two-hour episode. But that's for next week. The scene itself concludes with a wonderful wide shot, very, very wide shot. Sawyer and Juliet exiting stage right and Hurley stage left. With that, we head back to Ben and Alex, the latter of which gets some bad news. Would you let me come? I let you come because I'm delivering you to your new family. I let you come because you betrayed me, Alex. You lock Carl in a cage. You put him in a room and tried to brainwash him. I didn't want him to get you pregnant. I suppose I overreacted. It's typically underplayed by Ben, though quite harsh to expel your own daughter. The flip side is, you know, is Ben just in demonstrating that the rules apply to him as well, a la Abraham sacrificing Isaac? And also his logic to protect her, to protect his daughter, you know, though extreme, certainly, um, uh, you know, fits within some of his potential uh, either on-island concerns or the fact that his mother died in childbirth, that sort of thing. At any rate, Alex asks why people just can't be allowed to leave and really um, kind of hammering home this notion that um, Ben really is a man on a mission. He says with finality that they just can't leave. And it's true, isn't it? Too many people leave, then someone tries to come back, then Widmore piggybacks and Smokey finds a way out, and, you know, it's all it's all for naught. The episode starts to wrap up with an eye shot. It's Locke in the open Dharma grave, bleeding, legs apparently not quite working, but alive. It's an interesting story bit that his paralysis returns when times are tough. I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Anyhow, Locke grabs a gun, checks that it's loaded, pulls back the hammer, and prepares to take his own life. But then... Don't, John. Put the gun down. Now get up, John. He shot me and I can't move my legs. You can move your legs. Now get out of the ditch, John. Why? Because you have work to do. What you have there is a great shot of Walt. Somehow in partial shadow with the deep blue sky behind him. And it's a shocking ending. Not incredibly so, if you were to watch the credits uh, at the top of the episode, but it's worth reflecting that it is, of course, not Walt standing before him. It's the smoke monster prepared to whisper in the ear of another pawn in that 2,000-year-old battle, one that has taken a few steps closer to the temple, to Jacob, to the man in black, and to the rest of the series. So with this, now the midway point of the two-hour episode, or in uh, more recent versions, in more recent releases, uh, the end of Looking Glass Part 1, uh, let's now take a look at Lostpedia to see what bits and pieces I have missed. There's some goodies in here. Uh, first, on Wednesday, January 30th, 2008, ABC premiered a special version of Through the Looking Glass, 
enhanced with on-screen facts and backstory. This enhanced version included text in the lower third of the screen, setting viewers in, letting viewers in on clues in the show, providing backstory to catch up new viewers for season four. Now, I actually distinctly remember watching that. Uh, so I could tell you where I was Wednesday, January 30th, 2008 at 8 p.m. This was uh, a pretty awful experience watching what I watched anyway of the enhanced episodes. Uh, Jack uh, on the plane, bearded. Uh, some of the uh, enhanced facts on screen were uh, Jack is clearly depressed and things like, uh, you know, Jack has been drinking too much. Things that a moron uh, would need to be told and things that I could see because professional actor Matthew Fox uh, has been hired by a professional bunch of directors and editors and set lighters, etc., etc., in order to portray him being depressed. Just a, I don't know. I didn't, maybe the enhanced stuff got better. I don't know. But to me, it was no good. Uh, elsewhere about this episode, two or three female whispers that Locke hears as he's about to shoot himself and seconds before Walt appears to him are very unclear. The most agreed-upon interpretations are, help me, Naomi, I don't know that name, and I have hell to pay. I don't quite know what to make of that, but uh, it certainly is a bit spooky. Uh, the third bit of trivia from Lostpedia, according to the enhanced episode, the enhanced version of this episode. The mission Charlie goes on to stop the jamming device was partly inspired by Han Solo's mission on Endor during the movie The Return of the Jedi. Actually, I don't think it is The Return of the Jedi. I think it's just Return of the Jedi. So, uh, shame on you, Lostpedia, for that. A bit more interestingly, Jack's newspaper was an issue of the LA Times uh, from April 5th, 2007, Folded at page B4. That is, of course, no clue. It's just uh, something they had for him to look at. Uh, elsewhere, uh, not elsewhere, but further trivia, executive producers Lindelof and Cuse, who also wrote this episode, made several uh, separate voice cameos. Lindelof voiced the captain, apologizing for turbulence on the PA. Cuse voiced the off-screen news reporter on Action 8 News, describing the car crash. Penultimately, Malcolm David Kelly was shot at an upward angle, which disguised his obvious growth. Uh, I would argue that it did not disguise his obvious growth because uh, he was clearly an older <laughs> young man. Uh, last but not least, the hospital scenes with Sarah were filmed on the set of Grey's Anatomy, another ABC show. Uh, so there's your little Grey's Anatomy connection. Uh, having seen some episodes of Grey's Anatomy, you know, I guess it's... Um, it, it looked vaguely familiar, but speaking of looking, let's look ahead to next week. Episode 323, Through the Looking Glass, Part 2. If you'd like to share feedback, you can do so by saying hello to me on Twitter, Looking Back Lost, calling the listener line 732-707-1815, sending an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com, or leaving a comment on the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. So with that, I am very much looking forward to watching that episode and talking about it next week. Uh, you know, what a, what a tumultuous episode it is, uh, and then springboarding us forward to kind of a slightly strange season four. I don't dislike it. Certainly it's short because of the strike, and it just kind of has a slightly different 
feel to it, but uh, looking forward to that. Return to Dharma in Season 5, a big uh, favorite of mine. And then, for too long, dear friends, it'll be 8-15-2013, and we'll be wrapping up the podcast. But certainly we have many, many months, and months and months for that, over a year to go. So with that, I will bid everyone a uh, fond farewell, and talk to you all again next week for 3-23, Through the Looking Glass, Part 2. Bye-bye, everybody.